Click it. That oh. Sounds good. Whatever happens, happens. All right. I think we're live. Cool. Sounds David, good. welcome to the show, man. Appreciate you having having you on. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, guys. Absolutely. Thanks, I'm glad you glad you got your camera figured out and all that stuff. Yeah. It was a rough start. <laughs> it was a rough start. We've been here for a while, but we made it. And sponsoring Peloton, but that's okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so um so I guess just to just to start off for like the probably three people that are that are listening or watching uh that don't know who you are, how would you um uh, how would you describe yourself and, and kind of what you've done professionally and where you are? Oh today? man. Yeah, sure. Uh, look, I, well, right now let's start, start with what I'm doing now. So, so right now I've kind of made the leap into uh, venture capital. So I'm an early stage investor. Um, I invest with a, a firm called angular ventures. We're based in, I'm based in London, but we invest across Europe and Israel. We invest in, um, you know, pre, we invest like first check pre-seed as early as we can. You know, we say uh, it's certainly pre-product market fit, very often pre-product, sometimes pre-incorporation, you know. Um, so we invest early uh, and we invest in B2B enterprise, deep tech. So everything from, you know, vertical SaaS all the way to, you know, quantum computing or, you know, space tech is where like all, those are all examples of companies in the portfolio so that's what I, that's what i'm doing now but um i'm uh somewhat like an, i'm a somewhat uncomfortable and new investor actually so i i just started investing four or five months ago my my whole career prior to that i've i've been an early stage guy an entrepreneur myself um so that's it mostly in b2b and enterprise you know enterprise software that's where i've been focused um, I also bootstrapped a company of my own, which was all built with no-code tools before before no-code was a thing. Before anybody said the phrase no-code, right? This Wait, is really? 2014. Uh, yeah, I actually, I mean, we'll get into this at some point, but um, so most recently I worked at Airtable. I was one of the early folks there uh, on the go-to-market side of things. But the way I found Airtable was actually when I built this, bootstrapped this company, it was me and a, a friend of mine. We were both non-technical founders. We were trying to, basically our goal was like, can we build this in a weekend and make our first dollar by, you know, Sunday night? So Friday yeah, night, work. can we build something, make some money? And it, yeah, and, and we were like, if we can make a dollar, then we're, we're going to keep on doing this. You know, that was our kind of like, that was our, uh, that was our goal. And uh, yes, yeah, so we found, um, I found the first version of Airtable on Product Hunt back then. And it was like, it was the, I don't know if you got, you can go in like the Wayback machine and see what Airtable used to look like, but it used to be like all purple and blue. Like it used to have a whole different color scheme. So if you know that version of Airtable, you know, you're like an OG Airtable user. Uh, so we, we hacked this thing together with Airtable and Zapier back then, made our first dollar by the end of the weekend and decided like, okay, let's try to scale this up. And we got to hundred K in revenue in like four or five months uh, kept it going for a while and ended up, ended up selling it. Uh, and then after that, I, um, I joined Airtable as one of the first growth person, built the first growth team, you know, built the teams that be, ended up becoming growth marketing, product marketing and partnerships. So thought a lot in those days, thought a ton about one, just like how to grow a business like Airtable, but also like what, 
people out there were using Airtable to build. Like to me, Airtable is such a fascinating place to work because the the software is the product is so empowering. Like it it like I and I'm an example of that story. You know, like it enabled me to build this business overnight. You know, um, which was which I would not have been able to do without without Airtable. So anyway, that that was one of the best parts of the job is talk to thousands and thousands of customers and see all the crazy crazy stuff that they built, um, which was fascinating and. Then after being there for uh, four plus years, I, I made the leap to uh, to investing, as I said. So that's kind of the the you know two minute you know uh, quick tour of my my career so far. So Airtable is on fire and was on fire when you were there. Like it was growing very quickly as you. Yeah. I mean you pro you saw it evolve quite a bit. Why yeah, yeah. why jump to the VC world? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, look, a, a big part of it was that I, I missed the early stage, you know. So when I joined Airtable, we were like 15 people. And when I left, we were like we were maybe 550, 600, you know, and it's just it, it's just a different it's uh, you. It's still interesting, lots of problems, but just different stuff, right? Like different problems to deal with. And that's not where my passion lies. You know, I realized that I just get I get so much more energy from like the early stage, messy, uncertain stuff, like of the first year or two of a company. That's where I get so much energy. So I just wanted to spend more time doing that. You know? So you prefer and more chaos and uncertainty in what most humans don't want. hundred percent. Right? That's yeah, 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 exactly. And you know, the best thing about early stage venture I'm realizing is that you know, you're, it's like Groundhog Day. It's perpetually early stage, right? Like I never have to grow up. Cause I'm always <laughs> investing in companies that are like 10 days old, you know, That's so I, 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 I it's early stage forever. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's great. Uh, and in fact, when they grow up, like if they grow up, which hopefully they do, you know, they become successful, then, you know, they spend way less time with me cause I'm the early stage guy. So I just, all I get to do is the early stage stuff. Uh, so yeah, that, that was the main reason I, I was looking for something else to be honest. So as, as you're, you know, um, just thinking about, you loving the early stage and, and being an operator has, was your, did your Airtable experience um, it, it impact your investing now? Like, do you have any core principles that you look for that were created because of your experience at Airtable or were developed from that, that now is a focus on investing? Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a good question. I, I mean, you both want to take lessons that you've learned and you also but, but but you don't want to uh, you know uh, pay too close close attention to them because you might you know uh, you might end up missing really amazing things too. So you're, it's this constant tension. You know you don't want to overlearn the lessons of the past, but you want to uh, recognize them as well. Um, one thing I've been thinking a lot about recently is this idea that there's you know when when you talk about like the, the go-to-market strategies of different uh, products out there, you'll often ask the question, the first question you ask is like, who is this for, right? Like what problem does this solve? Who is this for? And uh, which makes sense. But I, I actually think maybe the right question to ask, and this is based on lessons learned and mistakes made at Airtable. You know, I often think the right question to ask is not who is this for, but actually the first question is, is this product a solution or is this product a toolkit? 
And if it's a solution, that looks like a lot of classic SaaS, right? Just like ver like all vertical SaaS out there. It's solving a very specific problem. It's already the solution. The solution has been built, you know, and you're just using it. It's already been created for you. But a toolkit, it looks so different, right? And and we all we can easily recognize developer tool like toolkit products for developers, right? Like API for every API first company out there, Twilio, Stripe, those are toolkits for developers. You know, they can use those, put something together, build a solution that they sell to other people. Uh, same with like every open source project out there, right? It like helps developers build a product that helps them, you know, solve a problem. They're putting those pieces together. I think what's, what's unique, what we didn't realize about Airtable and what's unique is that Airtable and Zapier and Notion and a whole bunch of other companies out there they are all toolkits for non-developers. And the go-to-market strategy for toolkits is much more similar, right? Like we should have been looking to Twilio and Stripe for inspiration about what the go-to-market, our go-to-market strategy should have been. Rather than what we were doing is we were looking to classic SaaS companies like Dropbox or whatever for inspiration, you know. The or big even like names, Salesforce. Or yeah, right. Or Salesforce. Like we were looking to them for inspiration and, and that was probably a mistake, actually. Like we should have been looking to these other companies uh, to develop our toolkit type products. And the reason I, I share that is because that's something I'm thinking about a lot now on the investing side is one, just how much the lessons learned from Airtable are applicable to developer products, right? It's very similar, even though you might not think that they're that similar, actually from a go-to-market perspective, they are. But I'm also keeping my eyes peeled for other toolkit products out there because I'm, I'm fully convinced that if you can build, like building these types of toolkit products, uh, you can, um, I think you, there, there is a toolkit product for every, for every classic SaaS out there that's solving some vertical specific problem. There is a toolkit version of that that empowers the end user way more to build their own solution that is much more tailored to their unique needs, et cetera, et cetera. And if you can nail that, I think that's a much more powerful product and has the potential to win uh, in, in win against, you know, uh, vertical specific, you know, quote, solution competitors, because empowerment is sticky, right? Like if you're empowering somebody and they're building their own solution, they're not gonna rip it out and, and use, you know, use a version that, that you built that doesn't take into consideration their unique needs. You know, so I, I think that that paradigm of software building, the toolkit for non-developers is, is super powerful. So I'm, I'm, I'm definitely thinking a lot about that. The, so, the, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I, was say, so as, I think something interesting about this toolkit idea is that toolkits yeah. also enable people like yourself to build businesses without technical development or technical need or software engineers at the beginning. Yeah. Absolutely. And so as someone who has this unique experience in both bootstrapping a business, working at a venture-backed startup, and now being in venture, what are the mindsets from each that you think are most useful still to people today building even in venture? Because I think sometimes a bootstrapped approach to solving problems gives you more time to experiment and play, particularly at the pre-seed stage. But people don't have that always. Yeah, yeah. I mean... Look, I think something you see, we've seen a lot in, in the market, especially over the past year or two, as the market has been gotten increasingly hotter and hotter and crazier and crazier, is, you know, founders will raise a 
huge pre-seed round, right? Like multiple millions, like three, five, seven million as the huge. first capital, right? Off of a, off of an idea, right? Like they nothing more than an idea. And, you know, on the one hand, you're like, look, if you can raise it, then great. You know, like now you can pay yourself to go explore. That's, you know, like all the power to you. But uh, I think one, um, one, one challenge with doing that is you're, you're kind of ramping up the pressure on the idea. Like now all of a sudden you have all of this money and it's somebody, somebody else's money that you need to spend well. Uh, so the pressure is ramped up. And if you don't, if you, but you haven't de-risked the idea yet, right? It's just an idea. And uh, so I, so, and I think that's one of the, the, the best lessons, you know, learned from bootstrapping is like you, you, you can't just, uh, like all you do is you're a risk destroyer, right? Like you don't take risk because your whole life is so risky when you're a bootstrapper, everything is risky. So you, the way you have to approach it is like every single thing you invest in, you're investing in to de-risk it. Like you're trying, you're always trying to, to take risk out of the equation because fundamentally what you're doing is so risky. Uh, and I, I think that that's a, that's a great point of view for any entrepreneur to have is like, I need to destroy the risk. I need to make sure that the, 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 the path that I'm taking is as de-risked as possible. And I find if you have a ton of capital up front, you know, you don't have the same, you know, the fear of God isn't put in you in the same way to de-risk. And, right. um, you know, like, cause the, the, look, I think if I were to, like what I'll talk to founders about all the time, it's like very often, or what I often counsel is the, the best thing you can do is raise a small amount of money where you don't dilute a lot. You're not selling a lot of the company, but it lets you, it, it's enough money for you to de-risk. It's enough money for you to get confident. Like the point is for you to be confident that this is the right thing that you wanna spend the next decade on and that this is the right approach. Once you de-risk that, then you can go raise a huge round right with with a great valuation and control dilution you can be the you know the master of your own destiny um, but doing it in that order where you're kind of progressively de-risking progressively answering key questions you know that i think is much more the the core of of entrepreneurship than you know um than raising massive amounts of capital up front and you know just kind of well, I mean, you know, who, who knows? But anyway, that, that's my point of view on it, at least. And most people, for some reason, there's this like uh, fascination with raising as much money as you can or like celebration of it. And I, I don't yeah. understand it. I, yeah. I don't necessarily yeah. agree. I don't think it's the, the optimal solution for every scenario. In fact, I think, I think the time we're in now is really unique with, and, and this is kind of leads me to my next question, which is, we, you know, creator economy or, or ownership economy of yeah. democratization of software, people who aren't technical can, you know, be a technical founder in some sense, just like mm -hmm. you did, right? And, ha and yeah. build a solution that you can make a nice living off of a profitable company or you can sell it, who knows, right? And you, without any funding. How, um, uh, well, two, two questions is, you said the, the market heating up and, you know, everything kind of ramping up. It, how much of that is, because of the pandemic and is maybe temporary because everyone was remote and how much of it do you think is permanent or do you think it's all permanent? And then also on the back of that, how have you seen venture evolve just even in the past year? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't, I don't think I can 
predict how much of this is the new normal and how much of this is like going to all blow up in the next in the next year it seems like there's a there's a portion of this that was demand that was pulled forward during the pandemic and that is already that's already unwound right like you you'll see that in public public uh securities that are so many of them are just back to pre-pandemic levels and and that just feels like an unwinding of pulled forward demand that we saw uh during the pandemic um and we're, you're seeing that affect late stage valuations now too, where there were a bunch of late stage companies that were raising at 100, 200, you know, X revenue, but now the public comps are 20, 30, 40. And so all of a sudden, you know, term sheets are getting renegotiated and valuations are looking a little bit, uh, a little bit frothy. And you're, you're seeing that at late stage and it's already affecting conversations at like mid series A, series B and early stage too. You know, it's slowly, tr it's taking a while to trickle down, but it's slowly trickling down. I don't know how, like, how quick, it's it's hard to know what the impact will really be on the amount that people raise um, or the, 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 the appetite for investment, because the, the reality is uh, there's a, still a ton of money in the system. There's a lot of people, and, and particularly, this is particularly about venture, you know, there's a lot of uh, managers out there, venture investors who raise big funds from their LPs over the past year. And so they're sitting on a bunch of cash that they are being paid to invest. So even if there's a, there's a big decline in markets kind of across the board, there's a lot of people out there who just have money to invest and they need to invest it. So that's the counterbalance to the, the public comps right, going down, right, and, and uh, deflating a little bit. The counterbalance to that is that there's still a lot of money with, whose sole purpose is to be invested in early and mid-stage startups. And so that's going to that's gonna counterbalance, you know, a, a decrease in valuations. So, so I, you know, I'm not sure where, where we end up. I do, I do think that, uh, to your point, uh, Jonathan, that there is something of a new normal here in so much as more like I think the, the macro analysis you hear, which is there's more people, you know, uh, online than ever before, right? There's like there's a industry, new industries getting disrupted that 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 is undoubtedly true. Uh, how much, you know, does that mean that I, I think there's people out there who think that means that every billion dollar outcome is from the 2010s is going to be a $10 billion outcome in the 2020s, right? Every $10 billion outcome for the 2010s is going to be a $100 billion outcome in the 2020s. I don't know if that's the case. Like that, it's hard to believe that that's the case. That seems crazy, but I mean, who knows? And, you know, um, thankfully from my point of view as a really early stage investor, it almost doesn't matter that much, right? Like the difference between investing in a company that's, being valued at 5 million versus 10 million, it matters, but it doesn't matter a ton, you know, because the different for a five or $10 million entry price, the difference between one and $10 billion is, is huge, but like both are such amazing outcomes that like I've done my job regardless, you know, um, right. the, the, one other thing I will, I will say about raising big rounds. Cause I, I think this is just, this is a point that I, I, I think, um, 
I don't know, I think isn't discussed enough because we always talk about how the, the biggest rounds and how exciting they are and the biggest valuations, right? That's what we always talk about. But those are, the, those are the, a rarity, right? Like the most common outcome is either zero dollars, right? Like this is worth nothing. By far. Right, By like far. that's the most common. Or it's some, you know, middle of the road acquisition, right? It's some acquisition for 50 or 100 million or 200 million, something like that, right? Like that's much more common than going public at one or $10 billion. Uh, and one of the things about those acquisition stories is that they aren't sexy. They're not the, they're not the stories that are on the front page of, I don't know, TechCrunch. I don't even, Twitter. I don't even know where people <laughs> like read their tech news anymore. It, you know, TechCrunch doesn't have the same cachet, I feel like. But anyway, they, they, you know, they, they're not on the front page. But if you as a founder have only raised $10 million, right, that one, or $5 million, that 100 or $200 million outcome is life-changing. Right. And it's a great outcome for your investors, too. It's not amazing, but it's it's solidly good. But for the founder, most importantly, right, for the founder, that changed your life. Like you are that's it's generational wealth for your family, everything. But what if you raised 100 million? That's not an option for you anymore. Like you literally won't be able to do that. Right. Your 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 board will tell you you can't Right, your your investors are going to push you to figure out how to become a 10 billion dollar company. Um, so. One thing to consider, I think, when when raising money is how each additional dollar you raise is closing a door, right? It's it's reducing your optionality. So uh, from a founder's point of view, like I, I would think selfishly, I'm always thinking about one, how do I de-risk this business? And also, how do I keep as many doors open as possible? And the best That's way really to do that is to not raise a lot of money, right? Or Or to raise just the right amount, right? Like you want to raise enough to answer the questions you need to to raise the next amount, you know? I, I think most people, I, just yeah. real quick, I, I think most people think that, and I could be wrong here, but the more money you raise actually increases your optionality. And that, that might be a, a incorrect or an untrue thing that I think the majority of people actually believe instead of decreasing your optionality. Yeah, I, right. I mean, it, look, r raising more money, it, it keeps you alive longer, but it's, it does so, the cost is great. Right. It keeps you alive, but it closes doors, but, you know, in so doing and yours, you're diluting. Right. You're selling a portion of the company, too. I mean, the, the best way to increase optionality is to become profitable. Like that, but then you're that, that becoming, you know, I think Paul Graham talks about becoming default alive. Right. Like yeah. that is ultimate optionality. That is what the real goal, you know, should be. Um, and, and that certainly, and then we're talking about two different types of optionality too. I guess we're talking about like exit optionality and just like, can you survive or not? Um, but I think both are really important to consider. I think one of the things I'm curious about in this topic though, probably two actually. One is that oftentimes, <clears throat> especially at the early stage, founders are encouraged, particularly venture back founders, not to focus too much on profitability and rather to focus on stickiness growth, yeah, building something right. people want, and then eventually coming back to that, which I think encourages these large billion dollar type valuations yeah. and mindsets where businesses die that could have actually been very successful as a profitable enterprise. So that's one piece. And then the second piece yeah. that I'm actually more interested in is how do you define, I think there are a lot of right answers to this question, what the right amount is, because you could be proxying for 
time to experiment, number of employees you want to hire, amount you want to get to profitability. But in your experience, yeah. how do founders resist the urge yeah. to take more, more money, given that the ecosystem is throwing money at them? Yeah, uh, I mean, both really good questions. And I, I mean, you're just going to make me feel silly because I don't have good good <laughs> answers to either I don't think of them. Really. Yeah, 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 no, no to me, feel like that all the time. So don't worry about exactly. it. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, um, so wait, the, what was the first, the first question was? Uh, first question, I think, was, so this might not be within your realm either. I think at the pre-seed and even seed levels, what you're it's talking about. about profitability. It's like, when do you right. get there? Yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah, yeah. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Um, so, yeah, I think, look, in the, in the, ultimately, it depends on what kind of business you're building, right? Like, if you're bootstrapping a business, if you're, if you're running a, a small business that's not venture backed, then the the milestones are going to be entirely different. Your goal is going to be entirely different. Like when, when you're bootstrapping, it's all about ultimately it's all about cash. You know, you're and you might be way more focused on, you know, how quickly can I get cash back so that I can reinvest in in sales and marketing. And so that cycle matters, might matter more to you than anything else. And like, that's all you're focused on. And then eventually you care about profitability. Um, but from a, yeah, from a venture back point of view, I, I think conventional wisdom is largely right, which is like early on, you know, if you optimize for profitability too early, that can be really bad because you're, you know, you're gonna be such a different business when when you're when you're 20 people versus when you're 2000 people or 200 people be such a different business with different cost basis and you know you're investing in different things so kind of like optimizing for profitability now doesn't really it doesn't really get you anything um that being said if you are in a situation where you know you we're, we're entering a huge period of market uncertainty and you're worried that you're not going to be able to raise because, you know, the certain metrics that you think you need to hit, you're not hitting yet. Then, you know, one of the best things to do is to become default alive, at least in the short term. Right. And may, that probably means, you know, okay, let's, we have, we have to cut costs. We might need to let some people go. We need to figure out how to stay alive until we can, we can sort out whatever these core issues are uh, that are making it so that we, we can't raise the next round. Um, so yeah, that I, I don't have a good, again, don't have a, a great answer on that, but I, I think your, your intuition is a hundred percent right, which is like in the early, in the early years, you can um, optimizing for, for profitability too early is probably a mistake. Um, and, but that's kind of related, I think to your second question, which is, what are the milestones that matter? You know, like, and, and, and I guess also, you know, how much money do you need to raise to, to prove that out? Ultimately, I think that is like, it's such a personal, like dependent question on the particular business and, you yeah. know, it, it, right, everything that you need, it, it depends on the cost structure of the business and, and what you're actually doing. Um, but, but look, I think that, uh, in like the, the way that I often um, talk with founders about this is to think about like, what is, what's the pitch that you want to go make when you're going to raise your series A, you know, like, and in fact, sometimes I'll even say like, let's put the deck together. Like, let's actually like put together the narrative. Like, what do you want that pitch to be? What do you think is the pitch that'll make it 
so easy to raise the A. Everybody will just be throwing money at you. And let's just work backwards from that because whatever is in that A deck, it, embedded in that are a bunch of insights that you've uncovered, questions you've answered, milestones you've hit. So let's use that as a thought experiment to try to unearth those you know, from your, you have that intuition about your business. So let's try to unearth those and then map that out over time and see, well, how do we prove those things, those yeah. things out together? Well, so humor me with this hypothetical. And then if it goes nowhere, yeah. we'll leave it. Let's say <laughs> I'm a founder that you've invested in, right? Like 500K, yeah. team of two, two years of burn, just paying ourselves to experiment. Right. Year in, we still got 250K left. We've got ourselves 100 to 125 uh, had other software costs. We have landed on the idea being, let's call it like a low code ecosystem and automations for specifically the B2B vertical. There's a lot of opportunity, I think, in the unbundling of Zapier that people are talking about. Mm -hmm. Sure. So sure. we have early product market fit defined as like four to five larger companies, SMBs, mm -hmm. and then one to two enterprise clients using the tool, great reviews. We now want to raise the next round to bring on employees, to scale operations, to think about what getting to 20 customers looks like. What are the main considerations you as an investor from the pre-seed might encourage these founders to be thinking about in terms of how to define what right looks like for the size of the next round? Uh, for the size of the next round, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a good question. Um, so, I think that, uh, so pro probably what I would think about is, you know, uh, what are the, the, the biggest expense that you're going to, you're going to incur at this point is hiring. Mm -hmm. So I would think about who the critical people are that you need, uh, you need to hire to kind of get to that next phase. Um, especially given it's only been the two of you, but th that's, right. I think that's where I would start. You know, is is what? Well, I guess really where, where I would start to my previous point is like what you know, what additional milestones do you think you need to prove other than just twenty customers? Like, wh what else does that look like? Are there evolutions in the product roadmap? Are there specific like? Uh, it's not just about getting to twenty customers. It's also about the the growth. It's about how you do it. You know, um, so yeah. do you want to do you want to be able to prove that you can? you know, self-serve onboard folks and what do you need to do to actually prove that? You know, do you have that type, do you have a self-serve self -serve onboarding uh, flow in the product or do you, need, do you need to build that? Do you want to prove, um, you know, not just landing, but expanding? Like, do you want to prove like account expansion? So I would ask like, what are the kind of like the, the those types of key product questions and like proof points that you want to make. And again, the way I would phrase it as it's, it's like, what do you want to prove to yourself about the business? Like we want to prove that we can do self-serve growth because we know that self-serve is the way that this business becomes a hundred million rev, you know, dollar revenue business needs yeah. to be self-serve. So, you know, we need to prove that out. Um, so if I, so I, would, I would ask those questions. Yeah. Yeah, if I were to abstract away what you're saying, what I'm hearing that I think I'm a fan of too, but tell me if I'm misquoting, yeah, yeah, yeah. is focus on the business objectives you want to achieve by whatever X timeline you want to achieve. Let's call it business objectives could be product, could be sales related, could be traction, users, experience. Mm -hmm. yeah. Let's say I have those goals set for when I want to by a year. 
make rigorous assumptions about the hiring expense costs, software costs, or even maybe outsourcing costs you need to supposedly yeah. get there. Give yourself like a 20 to 50% wiggle room on that. Expense yeah. all of that, and that's the size maybe to be anchoring to for a next round. Yeah, that, that sounds reasonable to me. And the one thing I would add is, you know, you never want to be raising when you need money. So like ideally you're raising well before you need money. So you should always kind of bake in like a six month buffer where you're like, hey, we're going to start raising when we have six, eight months of runway left. And that means that if it goes well, then we were never under any pressure. We always had, you know, enough, enough money in the bank. Um, so, so that's one, one thing that I, I would add to that. Um, and I think the, the other thing I would just reinforce is how I feel like the, the, critical, uh, the critical thought experiment here is to try to get in the heads of the next investor, the next round's investor, and try to think like, what would they, what if they could see this about this business would make them throw money at me? Like, what are the things that, what are the proof points that they would need to see? Uh, and then just try to, to back into those. Um, so I, I think that's one of the most valuable questions to ask yourself. Wait, I, what, what I, I'm just curious, like what percentage do you put on the product versus the team behind the product? Like when you're picking who to invest in well, or what to invest in? Sure. Yeah. I mean, look, when we're as early as we are investing, I, I mentioned it's often uh, pre-product or that's all um, people <laughs> you know, pre uh, pre-incorporation, right? So yeah, I mean, look, people are uh, they really are the most important thing. It's it's very cliche, I think, for folks to say that these days, but 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 it's absolutely true. Like the you are especially as an early stage investor, you know, you you're, I mean, you're basically. Um, you're basically getting married to these folks, right? Like you guys are going to be working together for a decade. So th these need to, be, you know, you want to work with people that you are incredibly excited to work with for the next decade. Um, so that's a big part of it. Um, and what I've, what I've found at least is like very often the founders I'm working with are the most inspiring people in my lives. You know, like, like the work that they're doing is giving me, you know, giving me the energy to, to wake up in the morning. Um, so yeah, I think the, the people really do matter. Um, that being said, I mean, the, the idea, so less so the product, but like the idea itself is, is certainly important. Um, and, and the product too, but more, less so in the, the product metrics or, or whatever, right? Like the KPIs or, you know, the product usage data, like none of Just that is... Yeah, well, none, none of that really matters because none of that usually exists, you know, so you right. can't really focus on that. But I always love, I, I mean, I, I say this all the time, like I'm a product guy first and foremost. So very often during uh, during meetings with entrepreneurs, I say like, okay, let's put the deck away. Like, can, let's just open up the product and play around with it together if they have a product. Because from my point of view, the product, the, the product reveals how people th are thinking about the problem. Right, it reveals their priorities. It reveals what, you know, it reveals like the architecture reveals what they think, like how they are structuring the solution is, is really important, you know. Um, so anyway, I think that the product is important in so much as it, uh, you know, it reveals the thoughtfulness of the founder founding team and and how they're thinking about approaching the approaching the problem, which, 
which is another way of saying it's so it's, it's like evaluating. People. Yeah, it's, right, it's right. All, again, it's all it's all about the people and how they're how they're thinking. Yeah. So uh, how many uh, how many investments have you made so far? So yeah, good question. So I've made two so far. I've only been only been yeah, doing this for a few months. I've made well. I guess I should say I've made you know two in my official role here, and then um, another eight or ten as an angel investor. You know, so before I started investing um, full time, while I was still at Airtable, uh, invested in uh, a few companies, uh, kind of on the side. This is when, by the way, as I was saying at the beginning, this is when I was like so saddened by the fact that Airtable had become so late stage and I was so hungry for early stage <laughs> stuff. So that's why I started angel investing. I basically just found, I mean, I can tell you, I, the first company that I invested in um, was this company called uh, called Gamma. So it's a gamma.app is the, the URL. And it's, a, it's, I mean, it's basically like a, a new take on, um, on, pitch decks on like building pitch decks and like the initial pitch that really resonated with me was the idea that this is a very common thing in corporate culture where you need to get a you know you need to uh make some big decision so the way you make that decision is you write up a, write up a memo like laying out the like everything and the memo gets people to agree that it's an important decision to be made so we should have a meeting so that we can talk about it so like then you need to make a deck because now you're in this, right? Like, so the map, yeah. and now and you're constantly doing like all of the, it's all the, you know, it's ridiculous. So the, their idea, Gamma's idea was, you know, we can build like a new version, a new paradigm of a product that's both a memo and a deck, right? Like you can present it as a memo, you can read it as a memo, or you can present it as a deck. And like that combination, it, I think I was in a particular moment in time where I had written like way too many memos at Airtable or something. But that moment, I was like, this is amazing. And I remember I, I, uh, I, I you said it to the founder. Yeah, exactly. I wanted it. I was like, I'll use this tomorrow. You know, I, I, I said to the founder, I was like, look, like, I don't know if you are raising, I don't know if you would take money from angels, but what is the smallest check that you're willing to take? Because I would love, I will put in the smallest check, you know? So uh, yeah, that's how I got started. And um, that's an interesting know. question to ask the founder, by yeah. the way. What's the smallest check? Yeah. yeah. I, look, I, I'd recommend it. You know, I feel like it's, yeah, it's, uh, uh, and look, it's easier and easier, by the way, to, for founders to take lots of small checks. So it's not as annoying as it used to be. Right with angel lists and everything, it's actually it's it's not nearly as hard as it used to be. It's not as administratively complex, you know, as it used to be to do that. Um, but yeah, that's how I first started making investments, and then uh, you know found a bunch of companies after that that I was uh, super excited about. But yeah, that's a that's actually interesting. You said that because there's this um uh, there it's like a no code CRM uh, geared towards like for fundraising called Folk App, like Folk F L L K. Oh yeah, it's a, right, right. Similar very similar very the ui is very similar to adio which is also a uh a yeah, i know i know adio well i was just wearing an adio sweatshirt earlier today actually if i really? had changed yeah, you seen it. yeah. <laughs> i was in their beta um it, it's a great pro well that yeah. is usually in combination with like an air table but it's like you know so yeah. folk is very similar uh the only difference yeah. is but, the, but they had a stress they just raised money and they wrote a blog post that I thought was interesting of how they decided to raise money. 
And it was specifically because uh, they didn't go after VC firms. They wanted Mm -hmm. only former operators, angel investors, like individuals. So they raised like three and a half million from individual checks. And then they explained why that, that was. Is that becoming more common? Uh, yes, that's definitely becoming more common. I, I'm seeing that all over the place. Um, yeah, two actually two other companies that you know I'm close with. One is called Oslash, um, and the other is called why can't I think of it right now? Oh, Abstract Ops. Uh, both companies that raised money in the last six months, and similarly, like two, three, four million dollar rounds, and they were almost exclusively operators or and or angels i don't ever remember it's, seeing that like that yeah, much I money think, from just angels yeah so i think it is it's it's new uh so i think that it, it, there's a few things that are new about it it's it's kind of um well one thing is that these folks are not in they're not like you know they're not business angels right they're not they're not people whose full-time job is just writing angel checks, you know, former, like wealthy, former business people who are now just writing angel checks. These are people who have jobs, right? Like they are currently working at companies and they're doing this on the side. Um, and I think that that is absolutely new. Um, and it's, it's largely possible because of AngelList and how easy AngelList makes it to invest in companies and, or, or specifically how easy AngelList makes, makes it for founders to be able to, be able to take small checks right, and, and take money from anybody. I think it's also a downstream effect of just a ton of liquidity in the tech market. Right? There's just a lot of people out there within tech in particular, right? It's a very small portion of the like overall. Like 0.01, yeah, it's yeah, a lot. Yeah. Like, <laughs> right, ridiculously small, but there's a, a lot of people from a certain, from certain types of companies, right? Certain, or certain names, you know, certain alumni groups, right? They're, they just- uh, Airtable. Yeah, Air, well, Air, Airtable is one, but there's a, there's a lot of others. I think if anything, Airtable is a little early, right? Like there aren't that, there isn't a big alumni network for Airtable yet. But, you know, like the alumni network of Airbnb or Stripe or like all of these companies, you know, these people have made a lot of money from uh, their work at these companies uh, and they want to kind of pay it forward, you know. And um, so I think you're seeing you're seeing that a lot. And you're, by the way, um, well, and I think it's also a marketing uh, it's a marketing strategy, too. Right. Like the what do you mean? And, and, and a go to market strategy, you know, so. The, like the, this company, Oslash, which I'm also an angel investor in, that raised a big round just from from operators. You know, one of the reasons, like if you were to talk to the talk to Ankit, the CEO, about you know why he uh, why he approached the round this way, uh, you know, it's not because VCs weren't interested in investing or something like that, right? No, he eschewed VCs. He said like I, we don't need more. We don't need more signal from investors. You're at like the investor signal isn't actually valuable to us. But what would be valuable is a hundred people from a hundred companies that we would love for Oslash to be um, to be used at. So we're going to get these people mm-hmm. on board because they'll feel now they now we're aligned, right? Our interests are aligned, and maybe they can help us get in to all these different companies. So distribution. Yeah, it's a, it's a distribution thing and a marketing thing. You know, distribution direct to companies, distribution and marketing because a lot of these operators have a lot of followers on Twitter. You know, they they're they're active in their own communities, whatever it might be. You know, they're going to um, 
like you hope that they will uh you know they'll they'll spread the news about about the company whenever the funding is announced or or whatever else uh, so I, I think that's a big part of it you're you're kind of buying scaled distribution with these checks too uh, how uh, it's interesting just uh, I, I mean every day you see like a million products being created and and you know some will be doing it will be like a single founder 10k mrr you know just all these yeah, like yeah. mid small mid level um and that's where i feel like more people are shifting their time whereas maybe before it would have been more enterprise do you, how mm -hmm. is this is this changing uh, the kind of the no code movement and non technical founders to be more technical changing enterprise SaaS at all? It's a good, yeah, it's, and it's interesting. Uh, I'm not sure. Um, I haven't thought about that yet. Uh, That's why I asked you. I want to keep you on your toes. Yeah, yeah, keep me on my toes, man. I, <laughs> look, I think that there's one of the challenges with uh, non technical, like, like pure no code software building is you hit some limitations. Like if you're trying to build a product, no code, build a product that you then sell, right? And like some people have done this with Bubble and some other app builders where they've actually built a product that then they're selling. Um, it's possible, but it's not scalable. You know, it, you, you run into some, you run into, into some challenges um, and you, you can't build a lot of the enterprise features that enterprise companies would expect, you know. Um, but is it maybe like, smarter though to go to, to for SMBs because that's actually a larger yeah. market, just smaller checks, smaller payments? Oh yeah, 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 right. No, so I, so I think um, it's, it, I think it totally makes sense because SMBs, you know, like the SMBs aren't gonna care if you have SSO and single sign-on or if you have like some, you know, ISO security certification, right? Right, Like they won't care about that. You're never gonna get that if you build something on bubble, you know, you won't get that certification, but uh, SMBs don't care, you know, and you can, I, look, I think like the, the, such a massive, massive opportunity is with, with no code tools uh, in general is they are empowering, you know, specific people all over the world to build solutions to specific problems that only they really know about, you know, it's very like niche. Yeah. Like so niche. It's like, you're the only person who actually <laughs> knows about this problem. Right. It's like you and 10 other people have this problem. Yeah. Now you can build a solution for them and sell it to them for a hundred bucks a month. And like, that's pretty great. You know, like that, that's <laughs> a great little business you built. Uh, that's pretty amazing. You know? So I, I think we're going to see that more and more and more. Um, and then what's interesting to think about is like, okay, what happens downstream from that? Like, let's imagine that happens. Well, one, one great opportunity would be, you know, you build a, you build a developer like agency and you go try to, or like, you know, you go to try to find these, these companies that are built on, you know, bubble and have, or whatever built on Airtable or whatever else and have 10 customers. And you say like, hey, we can help you turn this into like a quote real product, you know, and we'll give you a bunch of 
other, you know, we'll, we'll build in a bunch of features like admin features. So you can kind of manage this a little bit better because it's really hard to manage this stuff with no code tools because they aren't really built for you to distribute to other people often, you know, it, it can, it can be kind of a pain. So we'll kind of turn this into a real app for you. Um, and you know, you can pay us or we can take a percentage of revenue or whatever. And now like, that's kind of an amazing, that would be an amazing business. I bet, you know, because you're kind of building mini. And I think there's tons of those. Right. And that's very real. Yeah. And, yeah, and yeah, I don't right. think, I don't think that was as real a decade ago. No, I mean, ten, you know, definitely not. Well, you know what it was like. So a decade ago, what would happen is there would be somebody who had an idea for an app. Right. And they would map it out and they would put and they're non-technical and they would map it out and they would try to de-risk it as much as they could but ultimately they couldn't really de-risk it that much because they they didn't know how to code they couldn't they couldn't turn it into anything to to test it out so they would save up money or you know go into debt and, and hire some developing uh, developer agency to spend 200k horror. right yeah. exactly to go build it and then it turns out it doesn't work or it turns out they're a terrible pm you know, and they don't really know how to design a product and, you know, or nobody wants like, the product. There's no demand. Nobody wants it or whatever. Right. There's so many ways I can go wrong. And, and you've just wasted all this money. Like the, the, the real opportunity uh, of, of with, with tools like this is that you don't have to go through that pain anymore. Like you can test it out, test it out yourself, you know, so that it, we're truly, I mean, I think we're sitting on like this precipice of, or, at, or a better way to put it would be like, we're at the, you know, the bottom of like an asymptotic growth curve that we're going to see of people just kind of building their own custom systems and software. Uh, you think we're just I, getting started? I think that, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, maybe we're not just getting started, but like, I, I think it's only going to, to continue to increase at like a ridiculous rate. Be, because, you know, I think that I think this already exists, but it's uh, in in tons of parts of the economy, but it's not as legible. It's not it, you know. Like I, th I always talk about how Excel is the best and original no code tool, right? Like it is the original. You know, it's it's amazing, and the fact that we don't call it a no code tool reveals how silly the term no code is. Because right? it's not it's cool. Yeah. yeah, it's like the term is ridiculous. It doesn't actually describe, I think, you know, it's it's just a marketing term. It's not a descriptive term in any real way. Um, but yeah, like there's so many Excel, like think of how many like Excel macros there are out there and, and little programs written in Visual oh. Basic on top of Excel, right? And a lot of those have, are eventually turned into SaaS apps, you know? Um, I think we're just going to keep on seeing that, right? Like we're just going to, there's waves and waves of that type of thing happening. And so, you know, I think at the, at the like almost parallel to that at the same pace yeah. is I feel like we're seeing, um, I, I'm, I'm very fascinated by community led growth and building a community yeah. and then yeah. productizing that in some way. Yeah. Have you, have you seen, um, at least, or even at Airtable, was that a focus of your guys' growth of building a community and yeah. leveraging that later, but or anything like that? You know, we so Airtable always had a, a pretty vibrant community, but we didn't we didn't put in nearly as much effort as we could have, and probably as we should have, to engage with that that community and really you know, accelerate its growth. 
I, I think there's definitely more we could have done. Um, I, but I kind of want to make a, like a meta comment on the idea of community-led growth. I, I think it, it makes sense, but it's also um, kind of to, to my point earlier about how there's like toolkit products and solution products. I think any toolkit product out there must have a community, right? It is a critical part of how that type of product grows. And you can just look to the open source world for the original community-led growth. Like any of those open source, successful open source projects or that, that, that go enterprise, you know, whatever, those are all community-led growth companies. And, and it works. Yeah, yeah, it, no, it absolutely works. But I, I guess the reason I put a point on that is rather than trying to reinvent the community-led growth like playbook, we should just look to the companies that have done this successfully, you know, over the past 20 years, they did it with developers, right? It was a little bit different, but what's the, you know, how do we, how can we tweak that just a little bit for a different audience? Um, I, I, I think there's probably a lot of inspiration we could get from, from some of those projects over the past few decades. Interesting. And so kind of along the same lines, and this is a little bit of a tangent, but how do you see the Oh, no. Hey. Sorry. I got hey, this. <laughs> My bad. That's oh, okay. Uh, I, 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 I'm, I'm just very interested in, in, like I think of like the Substacks and I, and I think of podcasts yeah. and you know that is sort of a requirement for especially these you know mid-level non-enterprise no-code tools or toolkits whatever like is yeah. that would you would you would you mentor founders saying that like those are critical things in order to grow being a growth expert yourself right yeah <laughs> uh, uh so i think what i would say is so this is you know it, all of my my experience is obviously biased it's contextual it's based on you know what i've seen at airtable up front and then what i saw at other companies that i worked closely with like zapier and you know and and others from that same cohort where we were all kind of coming up together and talked a lot what I would say is um, what's what's critical is with a toolkit like product is you need to there you need to educate your user base on how to use it like th that's the hard that is the hardest part all of these products the hardest thing is activation is how do you get people to uh, deepen and deepen their product sophistication right how, how do you get them to use your product in deeper more interesting ways because once they do, they'll unlock more value. It's exponential. And yeah, they'll get sticky, they'll, they'll be stickier. They'll invite more people, right? Like they will be the pillars of your growth, but you need to find those people who are kind of your builders, right? Does that create network um, effects? Is that what you're saying? 
so I, I don't think it's like a classic network effect, but you know, from the, the classic definition of a network effect. But what I would say is uh, what's important for growth with these types of companies is you need to find, you need to find the person who's going to, the, the, all these companies require, right? These are Lego kits. They all require people to put together the Legos, right? A box of Legos is not interesting by itself. A box or just as a, an, a box of, of Legos, right? It's it interesting when it's put together in some... <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, look, I'm a builder, so I love that stuff. But like, not everybody, right? Some people like they don't care about the box. They want like whatever it turns into. They want the solution. No. Um, so if you're selling a, a box of Legos, you need to find the people like us who want to put those Legos together, right? Uh, and who are excited to learn how to do that and have ideas for what to build and everything else. So a question to ask yourself is. How do I find those people? What's the best way? What's the, well, one, what's the best way to find those people? And two, what's the best way to educate them and, and help them, you know, accelerate up the learning curve of your product? And I think community is a very powerful way to do that. But you should do it with those goals in mind, right? Rather than doing it, rather than doing community for the sake of community. Like it's not about, it's not about just having a community. It's about bringing together builders, becoming a magnet for builders so that you find more and more of them because they will be critical for your growth. And it's about accelerating those people's uh, understanding and sophistication. Is there a good example product that comes to mind? Of a company doing that well? Yeah. Uh, hmm. Would you say it's like a good question. Notion? No. I, I mean, I think that Notion is prob probably had the best uh, of this like last generation of companies. I think Notion probably did the like had the best organic community for sure, right? People, there's so More than many Airtable? people. Uh, I don't know. I think Airtable's community was was good. It wasn't nearly as public. Like Notion, I think Notion. And, and look, that has to do with the products too, right? Like Notion just had a product that, it, Notion is kind of like the productivity porn product. Like everybody wants to show <laughs> off like their, the new way that they do work. So, so right, like, so it, it really plugged into that and people love sharing that stuff. And um, so I think Notion- and Selling templates. Yeah, 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 and selling templates, yeah. So Notion took advantage of that, but that's pretty, I mean, it's amazing. Like, I, I think it's it's pretty fantastic. We were never able to pull something off like that at Airtable, I, but I think it has a lot. It has a lot to do with the fact that we didn't focus on community as much as we should have. My personal opinion, we should have. I think, but I think it also has to Almost do with the, fact that the product. Well, yeah, but I look. I think that we could have we we could have accelerated our growth even faster. I my my guess would be we could have if we had invested a little bit more in community. But, but the, what I was going to say is one of the challenge, the, the differences in the product make the, it means that the, the, commu the type of community would be different. You know, like Airtable, the like obsessed Airtable users are a little bit, they're different than obsessed Notion users. And the types of things you build with Airtable are, are different. They're like a little bit more complex and it's harder to share them because they have a ton of, you know. More like back end. Like, I yeah, right. Exactly. exactly. I mean, it's a it's a database. Like yeah. that is what it is, you know. So a yeah. sufficiently complicated workflow in Airtable becomes like unintelligible to 
somebody else. So it's really hard to show it off, you know? Uh, so that makes it, that, 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 that was always a challenge for us. Like, how do you, how do you kind of empower people to show off what they build? Because the showing off that, that feeling is so critical that, that put that drives so much growth, but it's hard to do when the, the, whatever people have built is kind of somewhat challenging to understand, but, but look like it's no more challenging to understand than code. So if you find the right people, like this is the thing, like we would be in, sometimes we would bring together, you know, customers or users into some like, you know, user event where we all, um, we all have dinner, have drinks or something like that. And, and the main point of these meetings or these events was not for us to talk to them. It was for like users to talk to each other, right? Cause they start talking to each other. And after like one glass of wine, one beer in, everybody is just bragging about what they built in air table, right? Like they are so deep. It's the, the lamest and best conversation I've I, like I've ever witnessed, you know, That's I loved it. But like they're, you know, these are like VPs of whatever at big companies. And they're talking about how they use like a lookup field with a rollup field and how like they're, you know, they are in the weeds on this stuff. And that's because they had the right, they were, they had the right personality. You know, like they were, they were psychographically, they were Airtable people, you know. And I, I think that is the ultimate goal of any of these toolkit products is you have to find your people you have to find the people who are going to be obsessed with with your product and really and, and get it like get into the details you know and um and that's why i think it's so similar to developer tools ultimately because it's like those are people who you know they, they also are getting into the details of these products and they're, they're obsessed with how this this api is structured and how they can manipulate it and they're sitting on forums they're sitting on stack overflow talking about this all night right the same stuff exists in the toolkit world for non-developers for sure right it's the the it's if anything it's like what is the stack overflow for these tools and maybe it right. should just be stack overflow maybe stack overflow should just expand into it um i think that would be pretty amazing actually because we want to give you know i want i want there to be more spaces for these builders to like nerd out and be builders together like i think well, what that about- would be great for the whole industry do like external, maybe you don't have to have your own, do external like cross community functionality work, like in terms of like MakerPad and places like that. Like, did that help drive growth? And because people showed up a bunch of yeah, Airtable stuff true. there more than anywhere else I've seen. Yeah, no, that's yeah. true. No, MakerPad was, was awesome. Like we, we loved working with them because it, uh, they did such a good job of providing, you know, external, external validation that you could do crazy stuff with Airtable. Right. And like, and they would put in the time and effort to make it somewhat intelligible to a, like, you know, a non Airtable expert. Uh, so so like that was me, amazing. An average person. Yeah. Yeah. yeah right. An average, average person. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I think that, like those communities were, were really, really cool, um, really valuable. Were you ever able to like measure that? Like, how, how or no? Not really, to be honest, like, you know, we had some, we, we tried to track some referral stuff, you know, the classic stuff you would try to do. But ultimately, I think the, the real benefit was not from direct referrals, right? The, the benefit was more, uh, more about creating brand awareness. It was driving, right, driving word of mouth among a certain type of person. 
you know um, i think that stuff was way more important than um than anything we were able to track i mean, so you, maybe, I mean yeah sorry go for it well no it's interesting you you said something earlier that was really interesting was uh like a notion uh user being different than like an Airtable user and then i'm thinking of like makerpad where it has like all these tools and a very vibrant community yeah. of people sharing them and but i would think that someone who is a a notion user a uh zapier user is most likely also an Airtable user. They all they all go together. I feel like it's the same audience, or is that not necessarily true? I think uh, Airtable and Zapier, yes, for sure. Um, I think Notion. I mean, these are. I'm just like this is pure stereotyping at this point. Yeah. So I don't. I don't know. But like you know, my off the record. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. My. Uh, my instinct is that Notion has some users that are exactly like the classic. And I'm talking about like people who build stuff. So that's like, another. I actually, let me step back. Like another thing that I think is useful to highlight is the idea that with these types of products, there are builders who really build stuff with them. There are users who are, they use what other people build, but they couldn't, you know, build it themselves. They or just don't want to. Or don't want to, yeah. They're not interested in in learning how to do it. And then there's consumers who like they view the dashboard, they view the output, but they are not really engaged with it in any way, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I think the builders are all quite similar, right? Across all products, right? Like if you're somebody who is, and, and I know these people, right, who are like obsessed with building kind of the perfect notion system, you know, yeah. and they call it a system. Right, like those types of people, you know, like they are also the people who are obsessed with building, you know, complex Airtable workflows. They like productivity just, hack articles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, exactly. <laughs> they love that stuff. You know, they've they use Zapier for like, for, they have a personal Zapier account where yeah. they, they, that they charge to their credit card just to run like weird systems, you know, for their their personal life. Um, so anyway, like those those people are all really similar, but I think that there's a there's a, a large population of people who are just users of these tools, but they aren't obsessed with them, and you know they don't really know how to how to use them or how to build with them, but they just use them every day. You know, is that and, the second layer? The people who buy, yeah, right? Okay, right. okay. It's like builders, users, right? Uh, consumers, I think is what yeah. I said. Um, yeah, and I think what's what's this is a somewhat unique dynamic to for the for you know non-technical toolkit right products right because with uh, you know Twilio or Stripe or whatever it's like you're a developer you build something with Twilio and then but there's a it's a consumer facing app at the end of it they have no idea that Twilio is being used it doesn't matter right so the developers love it because it's just it's a Lego brick in their their huge Lego you know uh, sculpture. Good company. Uh, and right yeah totally um with with Airtable or uh you know notion or whatever um you know the the people who are building the systems the 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 end the end output isn't some other app right like the end output is also Airtable. it's just you know it's just <laughs> already been set up um and i actually think this is a big uh -huh. challenge for these tools uh, both Airtable and Notion, as well as a ton of others, right? There's so many other of these toolkit style 
tools that are that are being built now. A big challenge for them is how do you give power to the builders, but then abstract away the complexity for the users, you know, so that the the users don't get overwhelmed with what the builders have made, and they can, aren't those they conflicting? Can, they, well, this is I mean, it's a, it, this is the product challenge that these companies are trying to solve uh, right now, and and you can see this with um, you know Airtable is building interfaces. Like on, so it's like a, a, a GUI to build, right? Yeah. Or a, a, you know, a, a system to build GUIs on top of Airtable. And that's kind of what they're driving at, right? They're saying like, there's builders who are gonna build the database, build the system. And then they're also gonna build a GUI for all the other people who don't care about how the database is set up and just wanna interact with the system, right? Um, I think that's really, really important. Um, and some companies, uh, some products, solve that problem by just like not not allowing users to really engage with it at all right like zapier is kind of like this right zapier is purely for the builders like if you aren't a builder you'll never go into zapier you will benefit from zaps you know you'll be you're you'll get emails triggered by zapier all day long but you'll have no way of knowing that was zapier or not it doesn't really matter to you you know um so that's like Zapier in that way looks a lot more like Twilio or something. Whereas right. Airtable and Notion are both trying to kind of, they have to kind of create a new uh, product layer to abstract away that complexity. And um, I think you'll see that with, with other tools like, um, you know, Retool. And like there's a whole other, and there's, there's a bunch of really small companies that, you know, are haven't announced yet or in the really early days basically trying to build like toolkit style products for very specific verticals or functions, you know, like replacing financial planning and analysis tools with some toolkit style tool. Like, or, like causal type thing? Uh, yeah, sure. Like causal or um, there's one in San Francisco called Cascade. Um, Cascade. Yeah, Cascade. That's pretty cool. Um, you know, and you'll see it in very specific verticals too, like, uh, I've always thought unit 21 is really interesting, which is more about building like security workflows, but saying, you know, we can, what it, it's basic in some ways, it's kind of like a very vertical specific Zapier, but not exactly uh, uh, around, um, uh, you know, to, to help maintain, to, to, to help with security workflows that you're like security engineers would be managing, right? right. Or internal security teams would be managing. Um, and yeah, so I think that that, I mean, I think we're going to see a lot, a lot more of these examples come, come about. So just have a few last questions. So now <clears throat> with Airtable, like Notion being as big as they are, just as, just because we were talking about them, we'll, prediction time, what are the, you know, what's ahead? What are the challenges that they're, that you think they're facing now at this scale? And mm. what, what do they have to do to be successful in your opinion? Uh, yeah, I think the challenges that they're both facing are, and that a lot of companies in this, so I wouldn't even call them out, right? A lot of companies in this category, I think the challenges are, it's all around, um, it's all around activation, right? It's, it's the fact that their growth is limited by the number of builders they can find, right? It's limited by the number of people who are willing to put in the work to put those, to, to put those Lego bricks on top of each other and build something of value. Um, I think that's the biggest challenge, right? For for all of them, because if you find those people, they will grow the they will grow the company for you. 
So you just need to figure out how to scalably find them. I mean, do you think there's a lot of builders though that just don't know their builders yet? Absolutely. Yeah. I, I think I a hundred percent believe that, you know, and we, we saw this all the time where we would, you know, show Airtable to somebody and their eyes would light up in this. And, and it was clear that it's like they, it's like they were meant to be a software engineer, you know, in a past <laughs> life or something. And they always wanted to be, but they weren't. And now they've realized they could build something that, they could build the thing they always wanted to build. Now they can do it, right? And they didn't, they never were able to do it before. We, we saw that time and again, you know? And, I, and so I think that's that- That's the education one, component, right? Exactly. That's why I think that the education, the community, that is why that's so critical. Because there's, I think there's a lot of people out there who don't realize they are that type of person. And if they are opened up to it, if they see examples, then they're some, you know, uh, switch will flip. I think also, um, I think also there's a lot of people who can learn to be that, to be a builder if they are just properly incentivized, right? Like if it becomes a standard skill set that is you're expected to have in the modern workplace is to build this type of stuff, or not if it's a standard skill set, but if you have this skill set, benefits redound to you, then I think you'll see more and more people who just start trying to become experts like i mean so many people are excel experts it's not because you know it's not because everybody we were born loving excel it's because one <laughs> some people are predisposed to just like that kind of thing and two there's huge benefits to being good at excel you know so i, I think you'll Indeed. see more and more of that yeah no um uh that that race uh, yeah no i i used to be i started my career as an accountant and being good at excel oh, did you? is a yeah. yeah. So nice. it's extremely important. It, like if you it, like it's, right. it's frowned, it's frowned upon to, to touch a mouse. Not a lot of people know. Yeah. That. Yeah. 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 Right, but, right. Yeah. Aren't there stories? I feel like I had some <laughs> friends who were, you know, bankers back in the day, like right out of school. And I feel like they, they told stories where they would like take certain keys off of your keyboard. Um, <laughs> so it's like you needed to know, like, you know, you needed to know all like the the advanced uh, short short keys or whatever. There was a, there was, there used to be, there was a, not a picture, but it was framed and it was a mouse, like a computer mouse with it cut off <laughs> showing that, <laughs> that you nice. cannot use yeah. this. Yeah, 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 um, yeah. <laughs> but um, I forgot what I was going to say on that, but um, uh, I, just curious, have you, as you're meeting with more entrepreneurs, more companies, um, yeah. have you been hearing more about uh, the, blockchain web three or is that just an area that you're just not like is that going to impact every situation in every industry whatever you're investing yeah. in or, or do you not know um i so i mean i definitely talked with many founders who are working in that space uh because i'm very like b2b and enterprise focused i miss out on a lot of the you know pure consumer side so sure. I've talked to a lot more companies that are more like on the infrastructure side of things, like they're trying to build like Web3 infrastructure, that kind of thing. Um, I've also talked with a fair number of companies that are trying to think about how to use like, tokenomics as a part, as a kind of a, a, a primitive in their product. Does that specifically, intrigue you? Yeah, which I think is definitely intriguing. And, and they're thinking about using it specifically to kind of like bootstrap 
you know, solve the cold start problem that you might have in any in any ecosystem that you're trying to build. Uh, so I think that's quite interesting. Um, and uh, I haven't found an example that fully has made sense to me yet, but I think there's going to be a lot of them, you know, like the, like a, an example of what I mean, even though this is not a, a great example would be like, let's say you wanted, and it's not an example I would necessarily invest in because it's not like a B2B company, but let's say you wanted to build, you wanted to build a competitor to YouTube. You know, what you might do is you might like offer tokens to people who were kind of creators and say like, if you, you know, create on my new platform, right, you can benefit from these, you can, we'll do airdrops, whatever, right? You can use all of these primitives that have already been kind of defined over the past few years. Um, and then you could, you know, you could offer a, you know, revenue share with everybody who has tokens based on advertising CPMs, right? Like you could, you could, and you could easily quantify what each person should, should, uh, what, what revenue or share people deserve based on the tokens that they were able to secure based on how many, you know, videos they uploaded, whatever. Like you could imagine creating that, that ecosystem um, or the, creating that marketplace. Uh, and creating that incentive, uh, that incentive structure. So you can, you can see how that might work. Like I, I haven't, like, the, I haven't thought deeply enough about it to think through all the ways it wouldn't work, you know, and I'm sure there are a lot of, uh, there are a lot of ways that it would completely fall apart, but, you know, broad strokes, you're like, okay, I can imagine that, you know. Like could a YouTube um, also just flip to that really quickly? Like if they see that, you know, if you're building that competitor or once it's centralized yeah. like that, it's, very hard to become tokenized we'll say well no it's it's a good point i mean i think that the um it it seems like youtube could kind of fight back by basically just offering better revenue share you know right. agreements <laughs> they, like they already do revenue shares they could just like do more of that um yeah i think this is uh, so maybe th this is a bad example for that exact reason um, but it's more of a representative example of like how you could how you could leverage tokenomics to try to solve this cold start problem that a lot of networks face you know and I, and I imagine there's there's similar ideas in b2b um, certainly certainly you can imagine there being ideas in b2b related to um, like any 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 ecosystem play like anytime you need a bunch of people to buy into like building on top of your you know, like you're trying to build a developer platform and you want people to build on top of your app, but you don't have enough users yet for developers to care. Like usually that's a intractable problem, right? And you're trying to incentivize them or you're trying to, right? There's all these different things. Um, and this is just a way of aligning incentives. This is a way of saying like, hey, we're, we're incentivizing you not by trying to just like dump, you know, like give you checks right now. We're incentivizing you by saying like, if we both succeed in building this network, then you're going to, you know, win, and, and we're going to win too. Um, so that alignment is powerful. Like it's it's powerful to find, be, being able to create that alignment. I think is really important. Or, or really, it's it's really valuable, I should say. So I I think some B two B companies are going to figure this out. I remember I was going to just to backtrack to what we were talking about before when you were saying uh, having you know that skill set uh, yeah. of building and companies. Is that 
sort of in reference to what I think is one of the better articles that I've ever read was the founders hiding in plain sight. Is that the, is that where you were kind of alluding to? Oh yeah. In yeah. That yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. That's right. And I, th yeah, yeah, I think and like you see that, that coming true. I mean, I, I think, I think so. And, and, you know, I wrote another article about like no code operations being like a role that I think would matter. And, and I think that um, both of those are trying to get at a similar point, which is there's going to be more and more people out there who are building stuff that looks like software, but isn't built with code. And the stuff that they're building is going to be, it's going to get closer and closer to software over time until the point where it doesn't look different than software. You can't tell the difference anymore. And hopefully more and more people will be empowered to do that too. Um, and I think, I think that's true. I, I, I have no reason, no reason that's to believe that. That's more internal, that, isn't it? right? Uh, well, yeah, I think it's, well, it's certainly internal. So I think it's happening quicker internally yeah. because there can be, the products that you build, like internal tools by their very nature don't need to be as polished, right? They can be a little little shitty. Yeah, because every it's like you have to use it to do your job. Um, right. <laughs> so yeah, I think it's it's happening internally, like much faster than it's happening externally. Um, and but yeah, I imagine it'll happen externally over time. I think that that's harder, I for sure. The the external problem is harder. And that's why, like me personally, I'm more bullish on Airtable and Retool than like Bubble or something. Right. Just because I think like the 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 market opportunity is much more interesting internally in, yeah. in the short to medium term. I totally agree with that. And that's yeah. gonna that leads me to my my last my last question, which is you said bullish. Um in the B2B space, what are you most bullish on in the next in the next five, ten years? Or uh yeah. what do you what do you overlooked? I have actually one question after this, but what do you think is yeah. being overlooked that you see, that you believe you see clearly today that will, you know, show itself in the future? Yeah, yeah, that's, oof, that's tough. Um, so uh, a few things that I'm excited about, I don't know if the, how overlooked these are, so, but I'll, we'll see. Um, but a few things that I'm excited about. So one is, we talked about this a lot, but I think that toolkit products like that's what i've been calling them you know during this conversation um but uh i think those products are going to be increasingly important um and i think we're in a weird moment where nobody wants to invest in like quote no code things anymore because it feels like aren't all the haven't all the winners already been decided and uh i think probably what will happen is people will just like rebrand it again they're not going to call it no code anymore and it'll seem like a whole new thing and then there'll be another like a to invest. No. <laughs> yeah yeah right make right yeah like, yeah un ungoogleable name like why I, yeah that, that's very interesting just, yeah, interesting <laughs> approach um that's what i thought. yeah but i i yeah i think that uh i think we're going to see more and more of these types of products that like take this this design inspiration of being a toolkit uh, I think we'll see more and more of them just across every function in a company, you know, every vertical, every function, just more, we're just going to be giving, giving more power to the people, you know, giving more power to the business end user. That is something I would, I would bet on. Um, uh, so that's one thing. Uh, another thing, which is kind of like counter that, but you know, why not hedge your bets? Uh, another thing that I've been interested in is this idea of uh, 
there was a there was a really great video from um it was an interview with parker conrad you know the ceo of uh, rippling um yep. from start from startup grind i think it was last year uh-huh. and really interesting video with him about uh compound startups is what he called them the idea is that you know there's way too many like vertical or there's a vertical SaaS products for everything. Like every little problem is now solved by a SaaS product and people are just getting like SaaS overload. They're like, I don't need another app. You know, what I really want is I want one app that does like all those things like good enough, you know? And like, actually that would be way better, you know? Um, and this feels like a classic pendulum that swings, right? It's like you, one app that rules them all, but it's so bad that eventually it gets unbundled. And it's unbundled, unbundled, and now there's too many apps, so they start getting bundled again, right? We go back and forth. But the average uh, company it, definitely uses too many SaaS tools. There's no question. It's like 80, I, yeah. especially enterprise, way too many. Right. It's Yeah, totally. So I so I think that there's a decent, you can make a decent bet if you said, like, I'm going to try to bet on the next compound startup. That's just trying to build, like, some combo of, you know, 10, 12 different SaaS apps that exist. And I, th- I think the key click thing, up. W- yeah, ClickUp is trying to do it. That's true, but I don't <laughs> love ClickUp. So I don't know, maybe, I don't maybe this is a bad, yeah, maybe this is a bad example. Uh, I don't know. But I, I, I mean, look, I haven't found one that I found particularly compelling. Um, so who knows? Maybe this is a bad idea. But I think if you can, I, I think if you can find the right foundation, like data foundation, then you can build something really interesting. So like this was a point that, uh, uh, Parker Conrad was making about Rippling is because he, he was like they're kind of a he's you know obviously just like talking his own book right like Rippling is kind of a compound startup and the reason he was arguing that it's so interesting is because it's built on top of uh, employee data right they have employee data and what and and that is like very valuable data to have for certain types of apps. So it, it allows you to kind of expand naturally into owning like expense tracking because you need employee data to be able to do expense tracking well. And you can expand into XYZ, right? All these different things. So if you kind of build the, if you have a solid data foundation, then you might be able to expand pretty easily. And then you can also, you can provide, you know, metrics that would be really, really hard to, to, um, more personalized also better customer experience well yeah so right that's that's totally true right like it's just a better yeah better experience you know more about your customer because you know all these different things they're using and you can provide dashboards and metrics to them that would be really hard for them to build themselves if they were using you know 10 different SaaS apps like for them to provide those same metrics they would need to throw all that, all that data would be in some data warehouse and they would have to build the dashboards themselves and you could just kind of do it for them. So there's a lot of inherent value. Like you end up adding a lot more value by bringing these things together. So that's another idea. And then third idea for you is um, I've been thinking a lot about how how does Salesforce die? Because it's, they don't. you know, <laughs> no, look at I mean, that's what you kind of think. You look at public markets, you look at their execution. It's completely insane, right? Like absolutely, it's bonkers. But you, if you've ever used the product, right? If you've ever used the product, you're like, this is absolutely terrible. I so, totally agree. <laughs> yeah, so if you, if you believe that like eventually that'll catch up to them, then you, you, know, you kind of have to ask the question, like how, how, will, how will Salesforce die? And one thing I've been thinking about is 
you know, in a world with better and better data warehouses where people are piping every single piece of customer data, their product usage data, everything, and they're all piping it into data warehouses and data lakes, you know, maybe the competitor to Salesforce is actually, right? It's actually the data warehouse itself, right? Because then, and this is again, counter to my last thesis, but then is you could basically unbundle Salesforce and say like, I, you know, I'm just going to build some super specific app that plugs directly into Snowflake and solves this, this portion of a problem that a bloated app like Salesforce solves, you know, because, uh, that, because I can plug into the customer data directly. Is that sort of like, like this is like the non-enterprise version, but like what we were just talking about, like, wouldn't that sort of be like the Adio plugged into an Airtable replacing HubSpot or something like that? Like sort of idea is that, or no? Yeah, yeah, I guess so. so if, if Airtable like, like stored the data, I guess. Right, right. Only if Airtable stored the data, which is not a great use case for Airtable, you know, um, right. just being a pure data store because, you know, the, the record limits are, aren't high enough for that. Um, so an application, but yeah. Data warehouses is what you're saying. Right. It, yeah, exactly. It's like, you know, I'm trying to think of what a good example a good example of like a specific app would be, but like, you know, some portion, I mean, you're kind of already seeing this, right? So actually this, this is probably the best, best way to visualize it. If you know, there's a company called Scratchpad um, and there's another one that's a little bit older called Dually. And they're both, I know both essentially, right. They're essentially UIs on top of Salesforce, right? Like it's basically like, right. do you want to update Salesforce, but you hate logging into Salesforce? you know, just use our UI and now you can update right. Salesforce, right? Like so UI what if we just yeah. said like, yeah, and what if we just said like, okay, uh, Salesforce no longer exists, but continue using Scratchpad and now you're just going to update the lead record, but the lead record is in Snowflake. Who cares, right? It doesn't matter. Salesforce is just a middle layer at that point. Like Salesforce isn't doing anything, you know? But it's, aren't they kind of the data no warehouse? Longer and yeah, yeah, and they, the right, they, they are right now. Yeah. Yeah. They, so Salesforce is the data warehouse right now. My point is like, why does it need to be? If Snowflake is easy enough to use, and if you can plug into it easily with a tool like Scratchpad, then what value is Salesforce really providing at that point? Where it's like they make it, and it's kind of like the um, what's the uh, epic problem, which is you know the company that every hospital runs on, like where yeah, yeah, they yeah. It's, it's super cumbersome and complicated to prevent uh, competition essentially. Like, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, 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 is that kind of sales, Salesforce like what they're doing? Like, it's too complicated yeah, no, to get out of it, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, I think like I'd be really, I haven't thought enough about this to think about like what are the things that are really keeping salesforce sticky um there i'm sure that there are like what or another way to ask that question would be like what are the things that i need to do every week that i can only do on like in the salesforce ui or i require a salesforce login to do um, I'm not sure what those use cases are. I'd be, I'd be curious about what, what those are. I should ask some of my friends who are like in RevOps and doing this all the time, but what those use cases are. Um, but my, my, uh, my instinct, my, my hunch is that there are fewer and fewer of those use cases. They're, I, my hunch is that they're constantly getting, they're getting carved out by startups who are saying like, hey, we'll just be the UI so you don't have to log in anymore. You know, like we'll be the 
yeah yeah or or scratch pad like i was saying yeah. or um will be the you know the data visualization layer so that you don't need to actually use salesforce reports because those things are are garbage you know like there's people carving off these things and, it, and if enough of those use cases are carved off and all those tools are like, you know what, we can just plug directly into Snowflake if you want, then like poof, that's my, I, I don't know if that'll ever happen, but that's my, uh, that's I guess my, it depends if like yes. the Snowflakes are thinking of that opportunity. Brain. Yeah. I'm sure, I mean, I'm sure, right? Like if you can be like I, I've thought like there, there's definitely an opportunity to be like the customer data warehouse. Like we are just tracking every piece of information about all of your leads, your prospects, your customers, right? Like everything. And um, that um, I think ultimately like Snowflake is already that or other, other, I'm yeah. not, not mean to say Snowflake is the only one that matters, but ultimately Snowflake is already that. I don't know if there's, I wonder if there's room for you know a new player if there are some specific um, specific features that Snowflake doesn't have that a new player could come in and try to paint a vision of this future in particular. Yeah, I, I'm not 100% sure about that. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that could be true. Um, yeah. Um, and then uh, so I guess where where could people find you and and online or? Oh yeah. Yeah, sure. So you can you can find me on Twitter. Um, my handle is e David Peterson, Peterson S O N, the Swedish version, but only one S. Um, yeah, so I'm on Twitter, and that's probably the best place to find me. Um, and then you can check out you know Angular Ventures, AngularVentures.com, the profile over there too, with my email and everything. If if you ever want to chat, um, yeah. And every once in a while, I write posts on. Right now, they're just on Medium. I feel like I should probably have like my own. I don't know because it's easy. I haven't thought about it. I feel like I should have my own place, you know, where I where I publish things at some point. So like Paul Graham, who didn't update it since like nineteen ninety seven. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Exactly. <laughs> hey, but you know, old school is good. It's 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 coming back. Um, yeah. So anyway, those those are probably where you can find me. Would love to. Yeah, would love to chat with folks. Awesome, cool. Well, thanks a lot for coming on, and and really appreciate your time. Yeah, Thank you, totally, man. Jonathan. All right. See ya. All right. All right. Bye. Thanks. Bye.